everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing. Very often those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show, or it's a rejoinder episode, or in rare cases, it's a roundtable episode. Well, that's what this is. I talked to Lai Chi Fan and Douglas Lumen about artificial intelligence, writing, what that means for you, and the world, and the future, and I think it was a very informative and nuanced discussion, and hopefully you will agree with me. Lai Chi Fan is a tenure-track assistant professor of technology and social change in the Department of Sociology and Legal Studies at the University of Waterloo in Canada, cross-appointed in the Department of English Language and Literature. Waterloo is home to Canada's Google Accelerator program and the birthplace of BlackBerry. Fan works on media studies, science and technology studies, especially of biased design and artificial intelligence, critical design, especially of technological hardware, software, and data, and methods of public and policy outreach through digital storytelling. Douglas Lumen is a co-founder of Container, art director at Stillhouse Press, head researcher at AppliedPoetics.org, a book designer and digital human. They are an assistant professor of computer science at Allegheny College and the author of The F-Text through Inside the Castle and Rationalism through Sublunary Editions. If you would like to help out the show, you can do so in a couple of different ways. With money, you can subscribe to my Patreon, patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. For just two bucks a month, you can get these episodes as soon as I'm done editing them, rather than a couple days later. You can also throw me a one-time donation over at paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe. You can buy my book. It's called Tired. It's on Amazon. Or you can do the things that don't cost any money, like rating the show highly wherever you listen to it, if that's a feature. You can post about it on social media. You can can share it with a friend or simply just listen all the way to the end. Now, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Lai Chi and Douglas. Let's just start out with the sort of basic, so everybody knows what everybody's talking about thing um, with regard to artificial intelligence. What does that mean? Because I see a lot of people say, well, artificial intelligence isn't the correct term to use because it's not actually, the machine's not smart. It just has information. Um, and then also uh, LLMs, which I see a lot and backed out uh, from from saying what I think the acronym even means right now because <laughs> I'm not entirely positive. So, so let's start there. Uh, either one of you. I'm happy to start just even to address that question about what AI is and what terminology we should be using, because I think there is um, a really great starting point there to distinguish among different types of AI and the ways in which um, AI and its development has um, not so not been uh, necessarily a scary thing from the start it was a lot a lot of it was just about automating process and making it so that we could train computers to do things in a similar way to us but then at this point we need to distinguish among what we call artificial narrow intelligence which are the types of um, automated technologies and systems that just perform basic tasks so they're great for um, just making small things happen in I don't know, uh, businesses and maybe self-checkout counters, a lot of these things are automated. But then the AI that people are, are afraid of is called artificial general intelligence, and we're not actually there yet. Even OpenAI, like the, the corporation that's behind ChatGPT, 
has mentioned that they're so we so they're aware that we're not at the point of artificial general intelligence, which would be the point at which we could say that something like a like an AI system would pass a Turing test could be considered sentient. So they recognize OpenAI recognizes that they're not that we're not there, but they have very uh, openly discussed the fact that they're maybe that's what the open means now. They're openly addressing the fact that they'd like to be a part of that future and like shaping that. And that's where there is some risk going forward. But it's important to distinguish then that we're talking about systems that are not so sophisticated that we can describe them as sentient. We're not there yet. That's like sci-fi level thinking about AI. So maybe the terms yeah. help a little. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and even the, the terminology that some of the folks that were involved with artificial intelligence, again, if we, as we're using the term in the, the mid-1950s, acknowledge that even the way that we talk about it, they wish that the conversation would have actually started in a different way because the naming of the actual idea of general intelligence or artificial intelligence connotes something that I am, I mean, I'm not going to put words in folks' mouths, but I think like we generally on this call may or may not agree that like, while that is a, a science fiction dream goal, I'm not 100% convinced that it's possible, uh, even though like there are folks out there that would argue with me about that. And I can see the argument for it, but I think the true like Turing test idea, like Turing's shorthand for how they would know that something passed the test was this very abstract idea of a buzzing in the brain of this idea that like you could recognize something almost conscious in the way or the pattern of thinking that the machine would attain. And I still find that to be an extremely hard thing to gauge, and I don't think that we know how to measure it. So even if we saw it, could we perceive it? I'm not going to get into like the cosmological alien argument, but like the idea being that the way that we talk about it might actually frame the way that we perceive its possibility in ways that I'm not sure that it's necessarily desired or planned. So I think our understanding of the term intelligence here like also plays into how we theorize fears about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that makes sense. And then so with regard to text output, we have large language models. Um, which, Doug, last time you were on, I think we, we briefly talked about like neural networks um, with our generative literature talk. Um, and so like, how close are those two things together? Um, and uh, like, how exactly is like ChatGPT doing whatever it is that it's doing? So there are a number of ways at which you can arrive at a model. So the model is kind of the end goal of what one would refer to as a training process, which is really gathering texts and gathering sources. And there's sort of an interesting sidebar on sourcing that I, this last weekend, and I am just completely missing the publication, but this last weekend, there was some revelation that some of the models that we see as like the top line runner one. I think the Facebook one llama was was exposed as to having used copyrighted and protected texts in its actual training. So the idea is that there's some corpus or some body of text that you use. You run it through a process and one of those processes or those processes are generally referred to as like network constructions or network structures. A neural network is one of those network structures. The one that GPT uses is this thing called a transformer structure 
that there are a number of different ones that lead to different results. The transformer is the the latest black magic incarnation because like there's this interesting thing when you talk to AI folks about like how these models are generated, how do the networks actually work? There is some level of faith involved in how these things actually do what they do. So there is a black box aspect to it, but that's kind of the process by which you arrive at a model. So somewhere you collect all these texts and one of the well-known sources for GPT-4 was Wikipedia, which I think everybody kind of guessed because it's out there and scrapable, right? So anything on the internet that a robot program can go and just scrape text and throw it in a bin, that's probably candidate number one for any model whatsoever. Um, but there is some allegation that there are texts that are not supposed to be used for this purpose being thrown into these bins. And then they go through this process, this sort of network process, or this, in this case, the transformer process for GPT, which is a different kind of how you consume and how you evaluate the statistical likelihood of a certain sentence or a certain batch of words coming together. And then you get to a model which essentially prices in all of those possibilities. So really it's like a field of possibility. And at that point, you use the model to do the generation. So like the neural network is a, is a way there, but what we're really talking about is like supply or material going through a process and coming out with a product that then you use the product to do all the generation. Mm -hmm. And I think I would add to that, like the Wikipedia is definitely uh, the prime runner for training the model and uh, as a corpus that, that would be uh, referenced. But in addition, anything else that would be used would have to be would have to undergo um, selection criteria by data scientists in which they weigh the things that are that they could consider to be more significant and more likely to come up depending on um, depending on what kinds of questions are asked. There's something specific about large language models in particular, the way they present information, the way they represent information in almost a conversational way, in um, a discursive way, and not just as if it's like the relaying of facts. It's, it's more fun to read, for instance, than having someone spit out just pure information. It's, it's narrativized sometimes. Um, and I think that also has a, a big part to, a lot of that has to do with the integration of like thinking about different types and uh, of writing that have been into, uh, put into consideration as they put together um, GPT in particular, but we see this also with like Bing and some of the other, uh, Bard, um, uh, Bard particularly. Um, yeah. Okay. Um... See, it's the, I guess it's the, the space in between the, the getting the information and the output that's so like mind boggling to me as a not code oriented person at all. Um, where I, I, I have this problem. I mentioned it before in another episode that I had this problem with like physics where I was like, but how does your brain know what the colors are? Like, I know that like wavelengths, but like, how does your brain know? Um, and so, like, you could take this text and you you train it. There's, there's like, a weird philosophical, like, how do you tell the program what something means and how does it understand what means means? Um, and I think maybe that's where some of, like, the early jank comes from is that it's hard to, to do that and then to, like, kind of set up a 
a way for it to like reproduce so you don't have to do that all the time um uh yeah so i don't i guess the, there's a question in there about like you even mentioned there's a black box aspect to it but like generally for a person like me is there like a sort of concrete micro example you can give of like how it works or how it might work so one way that I think about, and folks can look this up, I use this as a very like insophisticated example to like try to get at this like gigantic concept of how does this, how do these systems actually make decisions, I guess, uh, as to like what comes from the text. Because the text has certain characteristics, right? So like if you put a, a group of text together, and I guess, again, the canonical machine learning AI example, when you start doing text is Shakespeare. You take all of Shakespeare's works and there's a certain pattern. There's a certain, obviously there's a set of subject matter. There's a set of rhetorical and verbal strategies that make those texts what they are. And early in thinking about what machines could do, folks recognize this. I mean, nearly a hundred years ago, this practice of something called stylometrics, which is like the study of style and how does style actually manifest and emerge. And a lot of folks that were thinking about machines even before what I'll call the pre-digital era identified quickly that there is something to defining a style in all of the, the sum total of all of those strategies. So there is something about the ways in which certain rhetorical moves, words, constructions, repeat, that make them seem significant in the body of text. So these networks are calibrated to like find significance to some degree. And a lot of that is based on the process that starts at the beginning, which is taking these texts and doing sort of what's called cleaning them up and actually making sure that they're readable and that they're usable. And depending on how those texts are cleaned up, you can, I guess you can foreground certain textures depending on what text you choose to clean. And then you can put them through the process. And then depending on when things happen more often than less often, you tend to get those patterns that emerge in the outputs as well. And one example I use that's really, again, this unsophisticated example that I spent so long building my way up to is this idea of the garden path sentence in which there are these sentences that exist in English where you could give people the first few words of the sentence and then like it's very hard to guess what the next jump is. And these models have like the way that they normally would go. Like they would normally go uh, one way. So I think one of the garden path sentences that comes to mind is uh, the old man, the sea. I think is one of the famous garden path sentences. Like that's a complete sentence, but like there's so many ways you could go with that. Like the old man walks, the old man wakes, the old man. In the text that you get though, there is something that is more likely than any of the other possibilities. However, with these models, you can do these things that are literally called turning up the temperature. You can make it spicier. And if you make it spicier, it gives more wild guesses. So it'll go after the thing that's less likely to happen the, one of the things that's lower on the priority list. It's also called what's top P or top K. These things are these parameters that are called hyperparameters, really big science word. It just means like rules about rules. And you can actually change it so that it will go after the thing that it represented less in what went through the network. So the network is trying to find patterns based on repetition and based on frequency. And then when it comes out of the network, that's when you can start to mess with the way that the network found it. So it found walks more than it found uh, slept, right? And so then you can, when you do a generation, it is more likely that it's kind of on a basis of more likely than not, rather than like a definite 
move, uh, but it depends a lot on, again, context. And the models that we're seeing now, it, extremely GPT and BARD, right? They're able to do that conversational thing because they're able to put this extra layer on it that has to do with the way that that information is relayed to you. But largely, the, the fundamental of neural network transformer, any other way that you can go about putting these things together, has to do with that kind of dance between what you choose to source and then what it's possible for that model to actually manifest. Okay. That's interesting. Um, what would be fun is if, if this were a video thing, I'd love to be wearing a heart rate monitor because there's certain things you say that make my body tingle. Like I get really excited. Um, and so I think, I think maybe, um, for the for the audience i saw a whole bunch of people get mad on twitter about artificial intelligence recently because a writer used it to help make a book um one of the things when i was most excited about like dolly is when it was super janky when it was like just put out to the public and it was like really janky and really weird um there's the website this person does not exist that i loved uh, briefly to click through because it would get like really confused about jewelry and so like it would be just like 10 normal people in a row and then like some strange flesh monster and I found that really really interesting um and creatively um the the jank is actually what I like um a a technique I do sometimes when I'm just writing poetry for myself is I'll write a poem and then I'll feed it through Google Translate back and forth a bunch of disparate languages and then spit it back out into English and see if it has anything, see if there's anything there. Um, I guess maybe what it makes it so threatening, what makes AI so threatening is that the people who are working on it are trying to make it less janky, um, which then becomes you know, threatening to people who are trying to do things precisely and concisely and beautifully and whatnot. Um, it's funny you say that because I think uh, with, G with GPT-4 in particular compared to chat, uh, chat GPT when it first was released in November of last year, I'm noticing that GPT-4 is actually starting to become a little bit more janky, but I think mm -hmm. that's because the professionals are deviating towards it to, to be like, this is the tool we're going to use. We're not using the free one anymore. But in so doing, maybe they're training it towards um, asking specific kinds of questions or rep repeatedly um, having to do and generate in the same ways and, and, and such that the answers are coming out very odd. Uh, Doug, I saw you nod. Is there something? <laughs> what, what are you thinking about that? I just plus one the jankiness because I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, go ahead, please. I was, I was also going to say, like, the jankiness for me originally when I was working with GPT-2 was not even just about it being, like, kind of off in the way that it's like, haha, that's not how language works, but isn't this an interesting poem now? Or, or um, this doesn't quite look like a face or th this hand has six fingers, that's all janky. But the jankiness I, I was also noticing was when it would make um, assumptions about groups of people or, or misrepresentations that were janky in relation to how I would normally 
describe um, processes or people. Uh, and specifically, I mean that results were coming out that were blatantly, you know, racist. Uh, to me, that's also its demonstration of its jank, I suppose, because it's showing me that it doesn't have a, a type of common sense when it comes to representation or that it's being, it's, I don't necessarily think that it's being trained on tons and tons of racist texts, but as just as an example, if it were, if um, a large language model were trained on um, uh, lots of texts on, on uh, from, from, from English literature and there were, were, let's say racial slurs that were used, it cannot differentiate between um, terms that are being used in a derogatory way or terms that are be just being used because they're um, being maybe even in a critical way just to say well, this is this language is, is not being represented in a positive light but if it's counting for instance if it's like a sophisticated counting machine and it's like this word shows up a lot that must mean it's normal to use therefore I will therefore I will put it into use um, but it doesn't have the the uh, capacity to figure out the nuance to say this is not an allowed word, and this is where the the, the designers have to come in to say we can't use, you know, this has to be a list of forbidden words. So I um I think it's we're starting to see the other end of this um, refinement where the product is starting to show a little bit of jank again. But um, there is a lot more focus on the bias, and instead we're seeing jank in almost like for creative capacity. Anyway, for my own personal stuff, I'm very interested in the uh, the sort of mirroring of uh, ideologies, but I'm thinking about jank the way you're describing it in all sorts of different ways, the ways in which it sort of lets up that it's not quite working and representing and making in the same way that we would. Right. Yeah, I for, mean, yeah, for, and that with its benefits and risks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I guess I have kind of trained myself to think about it in a more fun way because I like to watch speed runs. So I like to see someone be like, "Well, if you just jump on this rock three times, whoop, the level's way below you, and you just skip to the end of the level, and there we go." It was supposed to take forty five minutes, but it took forty five seconds. How silly! And then you have game devs on Twitter being like. Yeah, well, you know, it would have been a hundred more hours worth of work to fix the rock, so we just left the rock in there and hope that nobody noticed it. Um, and I can see where, um, beyond the the sort of authorship and ownership uh, discussion, where uh, just kind of mass scraping of the internet becomes dangerous from that perspective, um, because like certain groups of people don't mind their literature just getting out into the world without proper accreditation or whatever, right? Like Conservapedia is huge and it's out there and presumably could have been scraped at any point in time. Or I, I mean, I remember years and years ago watching YouTube videos about like Microsoft made a AI power a Twitter account and it started quoting Hitler within 12 hours because 4chan heard about it or whatever. Um, I think that was, um, was that Taylor or Tay or something? I, I think that was, that was the Taybot. 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 Yeah. Well, I think it was called Taybot. I, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely remember that story because it was one of the, it's a story that folks use now to prompt 
at least computer scientists, because I, I teach computer science, I use it to prompt them to like think about the fact that you're releasing something that the public can edit and can use. And people, well, I, I like to think the internet's a good place. I know the like contradiction of that statement. It's not necessarily. So, you know, I believe in the goodness of people, but people also like to do terrible things on the internet. So that's one example where you can't let people run away with your sourcing. Sure. Um, so I guess the, the large, well, there's so many, so I can't say the large thing. One, one of the, the big worries that I see repeated over and over again has to do with, um, ownership, authorship, stealing, plagiarism, um, as a person involved with experimental writing, so-called, like I'm aware of Burroughs and Kathy Acker and Tan Lin and like, people who use plagiarism as part of their art. Um, Vanessa Place did the thing where she was tweeting out Wuthering Heights and, um, um, oh, I had another example, but, but I suppose my, my point is, is there like, oh, everybody in my, my friend's group discord was like worried when they were wondering if, if all of their Google Docs were going to be fed into ChatGPT. And I think Zoom said something with regard to all of the stuff taking place there being available and DeviantArt and stuff like that. So this idea of like not necessarily being able to consent to what you put on the internet and being used um, in different, in, in ways that you did not expect or, or would not approve of. Um, so like you you have both alluded to the idea that there are certain models that are using stuff they're not supposed to be using um to train with and um like i guess how prevalent is that is is maybe like the first question and i guess it's maybe even hard to tell but well, that's part of it, right? So, Lychee, you referenced the idea of, like, open AI. Like, what does open mean? And I think that a lot of people expected that that would mean that you're open about your sourcing, you're open about where you take texts from. And it's actually not true, right? All of these companies that are trying to monetize or commercialize these models, we've realized that the value is in the data, and the data is the secret sauce. And you, if you give away the secret sauce, you're giving away the value of the model because now... Any one of us on this call with some work could train a model from text, given that we have access to it, right? So we could create the best conversational chatbot for free. And there, and there are clearly costs involved with that, but let's just go with the thought experiment of like, there's no commercial barrier to doing it. We could do it. And I, I mean, to make a like broad accusation, to be fair, I think all of the major commercial models are using texts that are, that are proprietary and copyrighted. I think it's just the case. And because of how good they are at, uh, at least at like conversationalism and chat and contemporary language, right? Like, I think that's one thing. There are models that are, are not commercialized that are making it very much a point that they are exposing what they use. And there are models that are trying to maintain that ethical stance toward the text that they take. But I think all of the big commercial ones, at least the ones that we've name dropped so far that are the, the really big pay for, pay for play models, I think they've all been named in at least speculation, if not actual proof, that there are 
proprietary text being used in their training. Yeah, and it just doesn't even, um, it's not restricted to text as well. Like there was a huge uh, um, legal case revolving around Clearview AI, which is a um, American software company that was, does uh, data sets for facial recognition technology. And they had scraped a, a, a pair, apparently billions of images, but a lot of them were non-consensual and taken off of social media, including images of children, which you cannot take. Um, so that caused, uh, it was to the point where um, privacy commissioners were involved, policies were changed around consumer protection. So certain things, I mean, I think kind of what you're describing is the license to, for people to take data if it's online, like who does it belong to? But at the same time, if there are going to be policies in, in place to protect um, consumers and users online, it can't really catch up to the speed at which uh, these technologies are developing. So we can always try to like we were just we just fixed that one problem and then and then ChatGPT came along and then it became a question of where is this text coming text coming from? And then it will continue on as we think about other ways in which data is collected from us. But it doesn't, it's not going to be just in text. And that's why I brought up the, the conversation or the, that's why I brought up the example of Clearview AI. I mean, I'm not just worried about the text that I'm writing. I'm also worried about the images I'm posting. If I were to wear like an Apple watch, what are they doing with my health metrics and data? Like there's data that they're taking from me from, from everywhere. Probably my purchases, all of that's going somewhere. So um, this is a, I think a larger question about uh, hmm, having to think about adapting to the speed of things. And even the, AC, uh, the CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman, had, I think urged uh, the US Senate in April, maybe May, to, to, to take this legislation a little bit more seriously because they have to react and almost like not they can't do it at the same rate but they have to be able to respond in ways that um make sense according to what's going on and what's sort of um up for grabs in terms of data and i love the way that you bring that up because i think the the thing is that all all of the players have to be in on wanting legislation to happen because it is a thing that way pre pre-configures, pre-thinks what's actually happening now. Like what's happening tomorrow is what they're trying to legislate against. And I think we've seen how fraught that is in the last 10 or so years as social media brought a use case of the internet to the fore that I don't think that policymakers at least were thinking about. And so you have this thing where policymakers now need to actually think about the future in a way that they haven't been thinking before. And it's a weird space to be in because it's like proactive legislation around something that's like a speculative future. And I don't, I, I really don't know where to go else from there. I just know that like, it's a lot of thinking at, at a speed that's faster than human thought. With every word you said, I could think of like four new snarks to say. So I, I think maybe it's, it's fair to assume that, uh, that's maybe not a thing that's gonna, that's gonna take place in America. Um, I mean, I think I agree. I'm skeptical, right? Like I'm skeptical about, but I'm hopeful uh, yeah. in some respects because I would like to see 
some of these questions answered, or at least like some evolution of the way we think about, and we're making a much more, a much larger claim than just machine learning AI here, but like the way policy gets made, right? Like, is this a, is this an instructive moment? I don't know. John Oliver had a special on AI and he mentioned the fact that we don't even ask oil, like we don't ask oil companies to self-regulate. We wouldn't ask any of these huge corporations to self-regulate, but nothing is in place yet to sort of check in the progress of things like there are recommendations that could be made but also it seems like every time i um like i i i think more frequently than i'd like i hear about ethics research teams disintegrating in various um large corporations uh, the most recent one maybe being like microsoft they had multiple ethics teams and one of them just was was canceled <laughs> i'm sure there's lots going on there uh, that I'm not aware of, but uh, it made headlines because yeah. that, that was a very suspicious <laughs> or strange decision, let's say. Ooh. But one thing that is interesting in this conversation, I was looking at it in response to the way that we were thinking about language and like she was talking about the way that language gets bundled into a model and like the way you use it's inconsistent with its actual use or the way the model generates it's inconsistent with its use and meaning. There is an interesting industry precedent here, because I'm thinking about the company Hugging Face, which is a company that does a sort of model aggregation, and they're doing some of their own model hosting now, but they've introduced this idea of a model card, which is thinking about the ways in which you describe the model from the perspective of what the model is, what it should be used for, what kind of considerations come along with using a model like this. Um, what data sets were used to train the model, like the, the results of your actual experimentation with the model. So there is some para-industry, I guess. I mean, Hugging Face is now part of the industry. They're doing subscription plans, and I think they're doing all sorts of things that are commercializing what they do. But for a long time, they were just sort of a repository of knowledge. And there may be actors within the industry that actually have more clout, power, and ability than legislation. But again, to the point that like you don't ask other industries to self-regulate, we're not really asking these people to do it. And it is, again, it's kind of up to a large variety of players to actually agree to do it. And when something is not in commercial interest and is in fact, outside of just not being in your interest, it's actually to your disadvantage to do something unless you're forced to do it or there is some compelling societal reason like the model didn't do this one step so no one's going to use it anymore. I just don't know that that's enough of a carrot stick mechanism to actually make it, make it work. The model cards, though, are a great example because they, like, for facial recognition um, models, uh, they came, like, I think the first time I read about model cards was when they were used by Google um, for some of their facial recognition tech. And uh, it was it was just a demonstrating an effort towards standardization such that everyone could kind of get up to the same place that also be on the same page in terms of what to expect that would um, uh, justify the use of a data set as being like a good model for training, um, a good model for um, uh, algorithmic use that would be agreed upon by all those different partner uh, parties including in, potentially in policy, but at that point, mainly research and industry, that this is like, a um, this. we all agree that this is a good baseline. But I think even that needs to be questioned because um, all the stuff I've been doing with, with facial recognition and model cards is about what they're prioritizing. Like for instance, um, I mean, I'm trying to think of a language equivalent of this, but for instance, if I were to do model cards and, face, and faces, I would obviously be prioritizing things like 
racial phenotypes and skin and skin colors and tones. But in language, what would that look like? Any ideas? <laughs> How to, uh, yeah, I mean, I think part of it is to have, make sure you, everybody has like a no-no list of um, like, I'm, I, instead of talking about best practices, a lot of the time in design, I talk about worst practices because best practices make it easy for everyone to say, I did everything right. This is an ethical project, but worst practices are like just to avoid doing this or make sure you have a list of, um, uh, of, 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 uh, make sure that it's parameterized, parameterized such that like blatant biases are not uh, reappearing in the model. Um, anyway, yeah, now, now Doug's got me thinking about standardization. Well, that's a super provocative question because like you think about like what, and these are, and so what's interesting about these conversations is they often evolve to a place that is non-technological. They get to the point where you're thinking about, and some of it is, but there is this place where you're thinking about equity. Right, like if I'm going to make a model, especially when it comes to language, or it comes to something that's organic and and so culturally focused, which I think, I mean, again, again, all these models are basically dealing in cultural data, if we want to call it that. There is some like bedrock level of agreement that everybody involved has to make about like how they're constructing this. What are they considering? What are they not considering? And what are the what are their motivations toward considering certain sources and other not other sources? And making sure that when you're excluding something from a conversation, just like you would do if you were having a discussion about, let's just say, like the contemporary scene of literature today in, a, in the United States, there are clearly texts that you should engage and you should think about that are thinking about contemporary issues that are inclusive, that uh, are are very well, like well developed. I mean, there are, there are the, all these characteristics that you would put if you were trying to, again, tr design the syllabus for your class where you're like, I want to create something that shows equity and inclusion. How do I do that from a textual perspective? There's a lot to thinking about from the beginning when I'm thinking about developing a model to achieve a certain task. How do we equitably represent that task in a way that actually is inclusive and represents the whole? I think the significance of that, I mean, the stakes of it are so high just because of the ways in which people will often take, like an everyday user or every many everyday users will take um, a lot of the generated information out of various AI models as being um, close to factual. And I've, I've had a huge problem with this and in that information is being passed off as knowledge, which is mm -hmm. like there, there's a big disparity there between um, the representation of information um, because of an aggregate of data versus something we know to be true or like that can be sort of verified and go through various uh, methods of justification. But when there's no distinction there, or especially when there's a misunderstanding that leads to no distinction, then people start to read things. I mean, this is a larger part of like an epidemic of like misinformation in general online. But and this is just to go to um, get back to Doug's point that this the technical conversation very quickly becomes a cultural one, becomes an issue of like epistemology, becomes an issue of like social uh, uh, social stratifications and um, the ways in which, like just as an example, and it's a very literary one, so I'm glad I had a chance to talk about this. Um, there's a, I think he's from Montreal, an, an author named Sophia Audrey, who uh, wrote an entire or generated an entire novel called Sleepers in That Quiet Earth, which is a line from Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. But this entire 
um, this entire system is trained off of Wuthering Heights only. So its entire conception and representation of the world is all that it knows, like the only thing that it can give you of the world and the way in the world and the way in which it does world building is through Wuthering Heights only. So a very specific understanding of landscape, a very specific understanding of what names look like and um, and uh, the way people talk and the way they behave and, and, and relationships and families. But if that's what that model and or if that's what that system understands as like the world, that's also its capacity to represent, uh, uh, like it also demonstrates the capacity of um, that system to tell you like, this is what the world is. This is reality. Wuthering Heights is reality. Yeah, it's that Wittgensteinian like limits of language are the limits of my world, right? Like that's totally true when it comes to to this. Or even even when we're thinking, and I appreciate like you, you're also bringing in other types of models, right? Like if we're only depicting this sub sector of the visual information, we're only going to get that back. I think one of the things that we haven't yet crossed when we get to this AGI concept, it's going to start conceiving things that are truly brand new that we've never thought of before which current models aren't really doing that. They're trained for specific tasks that we understand very well. And that's where they shine the best, right? They shine the best in things that are very definable, that are very evaluatable. And so when we wade into large language models, when we wade into generative AI from a visual perspective, we're, we're wading into an abstract conversation that I think for hundreds of years, we've all understood to be evaluatable, but not in the way that we're speaking of when we think about defined tasks. Right, like unless we think a novel is fifty thousand words plus, and that's it, you know, which is the the nano genmo designation is that it's not a novel unless it's fifty thousand words or more. Right, that that's pretty easy to measure. But when we start to get into like what is literature, right, like that's a question that we don't answer. We never do because we can't. And so when we think about models entering that particular conversation, things start to get a little squishy because it's not a well defined task. And so it does suffer a little bit from, from betraying its biases and living within the world of Wuthering Heights. You know, it, it does that. And somehow we have to contend with, with those limitations as we're also reading these texts too. So, that, I mean, there is a kind of information literacy in this age that comes from generated text that I don't necessarily, I mean, it, it's not common, clearly, um, that, we're, that we need to start to educate better toward. Yeah, so I guess um, one of the one of the criticisms I saw of uh, Lillian Yvonne Bertram's uh, book that that won the L diagram uh, competition was that it was the model they used was trained only on one particular poet's body of work, um, which my friends mentioned, I, I can't remember the name of the poet, but my friends mentioned that her estate is like very protective of the copyright. So it, one could safely assume that they, they're aware of it. Um, and um, I guess it's kind of the same thing, like for the sleepers in that quiet earth, like one of, one of the criticisms I saw of Bertram's book was that it was clearly pa uh, plagiarism. And without having read it and neither did that person i'm not like sure exactly like what that definition of plagiarism is right like i don't want to i don't want to too easily be like 
well, every artist takes inspiration from something. Um, uh, but that person went on to say that, like, using large language models is different from, like, doing collage or doing blackout poetry or doing cut-ups. Um, and I... And the reason that they gave was was fairly technical. So my play, uh, my um, my my summation of it will be maybe a little incorrect, but basically just because of the scale, right? Like it's so much. It's so it's taking so much information, and it's so exploitative um, that like that's how it's different. It's different from like going into a Vogue magazine and just cutting out all the pictures and rearranging them. Um, so I, I have questions about like what people mean by plagiarism, um, and like how one could use a sort of model like what we've been talking about for generating text, if not for the own final product um, as part of the process. That person also mentioned that like it's the process that's important, not the output. So the fact that that Bertrand um, was like using this model to uh, talk about how AI models do things racially and in inequitable ways is like not important uh, versus like how the model works. Um, I know that's a lot to kind of throw at, at you too, but that's like the swirl that's been in my brain for the past month and a half. Uh, okay. <laughs> yes. so, I was thinking, um, Thanks, Joe, for that question. I think the larger question about what how to define de um, plagiarism is in the, like, um, a similar question of how to define creativity. Uh, that we we may not be able to attribute the generation. Oh, calling creation something like content generation feels like a debasement of it of it of and of that process. But yeah. I, I I think primarily something that would help distinguish a work even if it were generated um from being described as plagiarism or being described as creative or non-creative is to help to show that process and that's why that it's like for me and based on what you said process really jumps out um there's a software engineer and an, who's also an artist who uh, delivered a paper at the 2023 electronic literature organization um conference that just happened last month in portugal and her paper was uh, so her name's lulu Liu, and her uh, paper was called uh the work is nothing without or um, um, amazing or, no, hang on remarkable outcomes are nothing without the work and it was on process and documenting process in ai generation um and I think the example that really stuck, stuck um, stood out to me that would maybe be a good way to, like a good um, practice going forward uh, was that she, so she gave the example of an AI artist named Stealthy. Uh, so like Stealthy, but Stealthy, who um, created an AI generated work of himself in a fight with um, Muhammad Ali and 
I mean, the final product, it looks very realistic. It looks like he's in, it looks like he's being like KO'd by Muhammad Ali. But uh, the the point that Lou make, tried to make was that um, Stealthy distinguished um, his work as being a laborious and um, very thoughtful, careful piece of um, art that took many, many drafts by show. And the way he did this was by showing the 80 hours of like different types of prompts that were going in, how to um, work with the machine such that it was understanding what the final outcome should look like, what kind of style and what kind of photographic um, settings, including lighting and, and everything like the, the artist uh, Stealthy was imagining. Going through all of that and is actually, it's interesting because it's not something I think we are used to when it comes to art and when it, whether it's writing or visual art, we're not used to seeing all of any of that process. It's often just the final product as it is with publications, as it is with like anything that kind of comes out for commercial, um, for uh, that becomes commodified. It's like, here's the final thing. We're not going to show you any of the labor. And I'm very interested in labor, actually. I'm interested in invisible labor. But process seems to be the way to kind of foreground um, this and to show a lot of work went into this. I'd be very fascinated to know what Lillian Yvonne did to um, come up with that book. I'm certain it was more complicated than just plugging in and getting out. Yeah. Yes, the, the interesting thing about that particular model is that Lily Nivon has been building this thing on a precursor of, so when we talk about GPT now, we say GPT and we mean GPT-4, which is really the model that's underlying chat GPT and what most people are using now. Lily Nivon used something that was a predecessor version that up until about a year ago was the latest and greatest Cadillac. And she they used the GPT-3 model, which allows you to train your own model. Okay. And that's, I think, the, the big question here is Lillian Yvonne used Gwendolyn Brooks' work to generate this model that they're calling Warpland, which is a, uh, a construct out of, out of sort of the Brooks cosmology. Um, and again, I, I think they've been tweeting about it since 2018, 2019. And part of what happens is when some, when a, and I think one of the things that precipitate this conversation clearly, as you mentioned early on, is the announcement that the book, A Black Story May Contain Sensitive Content, which I am so looking forward to reading and buying umpteen billion copies of uh, and sharing with everybody, um, is that the event sort of precipitated, you know, look, this thing won. And I think like, like she was saying, right, here's the product. The product came out. The product did a thing. And the product is the news. But again, there are folks that, and this is sometimes folks' first engagement with this particular artist, right? And they haven't been looking at the fact that Lily Yvonne has been tweeting about this since 2018, 2019-ish, and has been doing experiments with this. And the fact that they were doing it with GPT-3 means that there was a lot of labor that had to go into actually making this work because the they kind of had to section off. So they're using the software and not the model. So GPT-3 is not the model. It is the software that makes the model. So they're using an offline software that requires sophistication to set up. It requires sophistication to train. Then it requires the process we were talking about earlier about selection, about auditing, about understanding intent, about having a, an interest in, in making a work that does a thing, right? There's this idea that the work 
putting out in the world will actually do something. And then there's all the, again, the drafts we didn't see, right? All of the versions of it that probably exist on a hard drive somewhere or, or don't, but probably do. Um, and so this event precipitates this conversation around, oh, look, AI did this. But mm-hmm. I think part of this also is just the the idea that, and like she's talking about this idea that this is going to become more mainstream. I think there are a lot of people that are theorizing that, especially in the language space, the future is not going to look like, there will be better networks and there will be better ways to train these models, but the near future is going to look like a lot of people making a lot of models. And so this is going to happen more often. And this is the time when I think, if anything, the the thing I, I might like listeners to take from what we've been chatting about so far is this like looking into the labor it does take to actually make this work and the investment, because sometimes it does require real dollar investment to buy the hardware to do it, to have the, the time to do it because maybe you don't have the hardware so you rent someone else's hardware. It takes a lot of time and effort and I'm not going to spend that and then act like it didn't happen, right? So understanding that there is capital, I mean, I don't really want to use capital as an argument, but like there is cost involved, right? And cost is sometimes time and sometimes is money and sometimes is you tearing your hair out and sometimes is a lot of other things. But that anytime you see a work that you connect to, and and there have been, I can't think of a case off the top of my head, but there probably are instances in which people have connected to a work only later to find out it's machine generated, right? And how does that play with your affect toward that work and then how do you have to kind of like do contortions to understand in your in your brain if you're someone who's against this kind of generative work how do you do the contortions to understand your relationship to it and i think part of it is just understanding again the process understanding where it comes from understanding so much of the context around the work that there are people that when the when the the tweet storm happened and people were quote tweeting it there were so many people that tweeted, I'm begging everyone to find out what conceptualism is <laughs> and how like this kind of art works. So this kind of art also worked outside of the technology for a long time. So it's steeped in so many different Venn diagram conversations that I think before engaging with judgment on an outcome, it's worth it to engage with uh, thinking sort of critically about perhaps how it actually came about. Because clearly diagram chose this from a process. So it's not just like, ooh, look, shiny AI text. There is clearly a vetting process that goes through making this part of the the lexicon, part of the, the canonical release now. And there's got to be some questioning around like, well, it's easier than just pressing send. Yeah. I, I think there's... I I agree with what you, what you say. I think maybe the... There was the, the Wes Anderson... Um, uh ai trailers that happened a while back and the the people that did that like very much did that with the intention of doing as little work as possible um the youtuber patrick h willems did a great uh video about these these um ai trailers for like star wars wes anderson or whatever um where he was like, Chat GPT, what would what's a good viral YouTube video? And it spit out like ten of them, and then he picked one, and then he's like, Okay, do that now. <laughs> and then it it spit out a treatment and he brought the treatment into mid journey, and then he brought that into the one that makes the faces move. Um, and then put it up on YouTube and made a whole bunch of ad revenue. So like 
I I understand um, some of the belligerence because like you do have something like that going very viral and the guy who made it is just like, oh yeah, it was an afternoon. <laughs> um, and so like that feels like plagiarism, that feels like uh, just like an easy way to make money and, and filling the internet up with more slush. Um, and what I am primarily wanting to push back on is the idea that like well you can't use ai to make art because x y and z reasons because it's stealing because it's easy um because um other people are using the same or similar technology to make people lose their jobs um some of it feels like the same thing people would have said again about like or still do say about like modern art right oh anybody could make a rothko and it's like well why when a rothko gets damaged nobody can fix it right <laughs> um yeah so like i don't know clearly there is a way to use it to make something like very new and very and very beautiful um my you know i've mentioned procedural generation and jank and stuff like if i were to use something like chat gpt to make to help me make something it would be just so that i could spit out something fairly random and fairly rough that i could carve into something better um but obviously there's like way more interesting things to do with it too hearing what doug said and also your response to it joe makes me sort of double down on process but also maybe as a normalized thing going forward to understand how much work goes into writing a novel or a poem on your own like a poem looks like a few lines a Rothko doesn't maybe look like much but the showing more of that process uh beyond just having a didactic is perhaps something that could be adopted more widely in creative practice just to show not that everything has to then be like oh you put x amount of hours which means it's worth um why that's not what i mean but to show for instance, uh, that whether it's generated or it's um, done by purely human hands, that um, a lot that there is like um, a, 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 a network of labor that goes into creating um, things for consumption, um, especially if it's something creative. Oh, right. Well, I already said that, but um, but yeah that it's not easy work it it can take so many drafts and i think it's one of my favorite things about um learning about writers is not necessarily just to close read but to understand or to look at drafts i love to look at drafts i love to know about their writing process uh all of that is it comes in as context in addition to process which is the other thing that lou wrote um that lou spoke about it that in that conference paper needing um context to understand what process what process might look like especially if um, an artist or a writer or whomever has like a certain style um the style's coming up again but i i'm i'm very interested in understanding the ways in which things are composed the ways in which things develop uh as being part of like the larger story of how of, of an artwork of an artist of a writer etc cetera, etc cetera. 
and I, if I can get super nerdy for a moment, I've been having this thought a lot lately about a role-playing game. There's a role-playing system out there called Shadowrun, folks that are interested in it's cyberpunk. But there's this kind of thing about media in that world in which media is released constantly all the time and it's only enjoyed for how long it actually takes to consume it and then after you're done with it, it's over. I What I fear is when you do have a machine or you have a process or you have some kind of service that can generate that thing that is just the thing that capitalism loves, which is rehashes of itself, is like when you can generate that thing and you do generate that thing and then you appreciate it for the five minutes that the clip runs. It takes somebody an afternoon, you appreciate it for five minutes and then you show it to your friends and then a week later you don't appreciate it anymore. Like it, it had its purpose, it served its purpose and now it's no longer an enduring thing. I do also, I'm also interested in the ways that people attach, well, make attachments to work that makes it last longer than the duration of watching and the duration of reading or the duration of a short period of time. Like what makes something last? What makes something meaningful? And it can be all sorts of different things. I mean, someone could look at a rehash of something that is a cultural property and treasure it for the rest of their life, and they attach meaning to that. So I'm not saying that there are certain registers that don't have any meaning. There's just different responses to different levels of work. But I think that the fact that there are those different levels of work they're also, I think I'm interested in studying or thinking about the ways in which if something isn't generated versus is generated, how, without knowing that, how do you read it and how do you actually appreciate, attach it to to your life, attach it to your experience or don't? Because some people read across their experience. They read to read experiences that aren't theirs. You know, So there's all different sorts of ways that people synthesize and and folks have been studying this for a long time. I'm a huge fan of this theory called surface reading, which is just like reading the thing for what it is. And there's something about the characteristics of what it is that make it enduring. But there's also things like close reading and deep reading and all sorts of other engagements with texts that make them mean and make them mean in different ways that persist for some period of time. So I am interested in in lining some of this up and figuring out like what, what, do, those, what do those look like in this era when there is such a... Uh, as as Matt Kirschenbaum from from Maryland would say, this text apocalypse, where there's just all this text happening all the time. How do you actually fish something out of it that means something to you? I think you're sort of gesturing towards the answer to your own question because instead of because what you're describing that sort of, that 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 sticking power, um, the depth of 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 content that that goes under the surface of being. Of, of just like superficial content, especially when it's constantly generated, whether it's like human generated or AI generated, it's a different, that, 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 I think you're pointing to a different kind of metric than content produced over time spent, which is a form of like measuring value and, and, um, and reception and, 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 um, t the taking in of meaning. Cause if it's like something that's going to last, it's going to kind of transcend that, model of, of measuring. And um, yeah, I have similar questions, but uh, I'm really interested to see where you go with that if you're going to continue to ask questions about that or work on it. Maybe the point is that it's not quantifiable. Like it's like I was using the term metric, but maybe the point is that it evades metrics because it's like, it, it, I use the term transcendence as well. It's like it will outlast a moment. Well, and so maybe, and I guess we're going toward the, the teacherly thing because we're both professory types. 
the the idea that like the way that we present and teach things and the way that we teach engagement with a text is something that is itself a, maybe a skill that we need to rethink or we need to like reconsider the way that we're teaching engagement to objects and viewing objects and con and contextualizing and placing objects i guess because like part of the value for me especially with Lily Nivon's first book, which is is code-based as well, or not first book. What am I saying? What I heard book before the one that just won the prize. Um, think of Travis Degenerator, uh, Noemi Press. Um, not her first, not their first book at all. Um, the, the way that, that the book, you talk about that book is like steeped in computation and it's steeped in code and it's steeped in experience and it's steeped in all of these layers that when you read it as such and you really tie it together, there's like this amazing network of meaning that is very of the moment, very contemporary, very future looking. And it gains this kind of relevance in this awesome way that it's not just doing historical reading of something. It's not just, it's doing something that's very, it's rooted in a very different set of texts, I think. And so like understanding the set of texts that we actually engage with. And again, we do this as part of when we teach something. We try to put a network of references. We pr try to tr introduce it in such a way that it has a certain resonance beyond its time period, right? Like why do certain works persist to the d today? They have certain resonances. I think part of it is maybe it's combating this idea that something is generated or understanding that what something what what it means to say something is generated has a different kind of context that we do need to educate toward or think about. So maybe it is toward that literacy argument too of thinking of what it is to have a literacy in the era of generated text. I guess I'm just like trying to argue myself into like some kind of paper that I want to get toward someday. But we'll see we'll see if that happens. <laughs> I think I think read, the, read Travis Degenerator. I think the network of references thing is interesting because I mean it's hard to read any sort of work without um, it being in conversation with something else, um, irregardless of of if it's intended by the author, right? Like the book I'm reading right now is going to inform the next book I read, and if I do any sort of historiography about the next book I read, then I'm going to have a reading list of, of things I could read to deepen my experience of that. Um, and, you know, one of the things, especially if you're using a sort of generalized AI model to make something, right? If you're just using like the free version of chat GPT and telling it, make me a poem, like it's, it's really hard to kind of tell where it's coming from. Um, it's hard to hard to give any sort of credit except for like broadly to everyone, right? I was having a, 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 a conversation with my wife. I was excitedly talking to my wife about AI and, and authorship, and she was very patiently listening. And I, I kind of talked mentioned that like anybody who's ever written anything on the internet sort of like has a stake in anything that AI generates like you can claim some sort of ownership to it and I don't know if that has anything to do with um the headline I, I just saw the other day about um some judge saying that you can't copyright something that was made with AI um but 
I don't know. I, I think that's, that's sort of a very like, I don't know, perennialist argument around AI, I think like, oh, we all own it. Um, which again, I don't want to get into that defense of it. Um, because I don't think it's necessarily true, but, um, I underlined the word process like five times in my notes. And that's like largely what I try to get at when I'm, when I'm talking about books with people, especially so-called experimental literature, like, um, you know, it could it be that the words on this page are arranged this way because art or because there was a, a sort of process behind it? Um, one of, um, and even, even explaining the process sometimes makes it more esoteric. Like I don't necessarily, uh, want to confidently say I understand AI better after this conversation. I want to feel like I do, but, but I don't know. Um, but like M. Kitchell wrote at the end of one of his books that like um, he used some sort of hermetic Kabbalistic process to arrange the various texts that make up the book. Um, and like all that did was was make me spend the next two years of my life watching the Esoterica YouTube channel. Um, but like even that like deepened my experience of the world. Um, so, yeah, I think. I would like to see anybody who does anything generative ever, uh, controversy or not, kind of explain how they're doing it, because I find that very interesting. I mean, there's a reason why anytime Dostoevsky's notebook scans get posted on Twitter that they go viral every now and again, because it's amazing to see all of the pen marks on top of the, the writing. Um, I mean, so, in as much as you're talking about like consuming text and like understanding process too, there's another way I've been thinking about generated text that's helped me. I don't know how it's, it's helped me do something with my own brain, but I think about the ways in which if we do believe that language is a shared thing. So what you're gesturing at when you say everybody owns the text is that we all create language. We all do our part to create and to produce and then to manufacture new language and we, we're all part of that process. I am interested though in maybe style to think about what makes a text distinct mm. is that there's this kind of exploration narrative that I've been telling myself where like language is infinitely configurable, right? If we were to think of all the, the combinations of all the words, it's a number that's bigger than any number that I could even possibly conceive. The idea being that perhaps the generative process from an AI perspective is allowing us to do discovery in a different way. And so like as an author, when I put something out and I put a text into the world, I'm not so much putting, I am putting thought into the world, but I am also discovering this configuration of language that does this thing. And perhaps the way to think about it for me is that the generative process for me speeds that up because it conceives the configurations at a higher rate than I can and maybe I, as a writer, can recognize something there that I want to explore. So, Joe, to your earlier point of you want to use the model to generate text that then you can shape, you're doing a kind of interesting reclamation discovery work on that text that allows you to then put that configuration or that discovery of that configuration out in, in something of your name that, yes, we all kind of share in the genesis or the generation of like that particular expression, but there is something to thinking about, at least from my perspective, 
the idea that when someone puts something in the world, it's like the first time that it's been fixed that way or it has been presented that way. And that gives me that interest, that curiosity to want to explore it further. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Uh, we are over an hour. I would like to offer each of you um, to offer a last word uh, before we end this recording um, based on what we've talked about today. Um, I will leave it that open. And uh, let's start with Lai Chi. Oh, I don't know. I uh, I think that we're only sort of starting to scratch the surface. Um, but I'm glad that we were able to talk about issues of labor uh, and um, the ways in which there can be lots of small decisions that go into the process of generating text. I know that it can sound like um, a scary world then for writers, including for some of my own students, whether it's creative writing or technical writing. I know that there's a lot of concern about their place. Um, and to that effect, I mean, I've had conversations with students about this, but I, I think this is an opportunity for all of us to, um, any anyone who is in the business of writing, I should say, to um, double down on and on um, making sure that we that others who take in your work understand the work that the, the kind of amount of effort that goes into it to so that for instance uh, people who are hiring writers or who um, or take or are reading texts understand that this is actually a lot of work and so it should be compensated in better ways um, I, I think I'm also going in more of like a pedagogical framework um, and for my last word, but yeah, I, I, I want to continue to talk about process and context and labor. And thank you for having me here. <laughs> You're so welcome. Thank you for being here. <laughs> I think where I'm going with it is that this is a tool. It is a texture. It does certain things. It also does not do certain things. It has limitations. It has opportunities, and in that way, at least the way that I'm thinking about it, it is a technology like any other that has its advantages, disadvantages, places, and we will evolve with it. And I, I hate to be the person that says it's here, it's never going away, but it's here, and I don't think it's ever going away. And we will discover, we're still very early in the conversation, uh, even though it could be 10, 10, 15 years into it, we're still very early. We'll see where it lands. I think people still want the same things from work that they've always wanted. They want authenticity. They want engagement. They want a work that grapples with the world around them. And this is just one more way that we can effect that, whether visually, textually, nowadays sonically, there are sonic models. And... Again, I think we're still waiting to see what its value is and see where it can go. So I'm excited about the future, but I'm also cautiously optimistic that this is something that people will work in to their daily lives. It's not going to fully change things in this very like chaotic upending way that we think it will and that it has a place alongside anything else. So appreciate the conversation. 
always glad to, to see everyone and have a chat about it because again, not settled whatsoever. Thank you.